Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond. My name is Simon Mundy and this week I'm joined by the former diplomat and Olympic silver medalist turned author, columnist and thinker, Kath Bishop. Now, Kath wrote a book called The Long Win in which she argued that the win-at-all-cost mentality that we see in sport and other areas increasingly like business is simply not serving us. She argues that it's time for a new, fresh approach. I saw an article that Kath wrote for The Guardian in which she spoke about the Winter Olympics, which have, of course, just finished, and how the narratives around it are still being framed through the narrow lens of medals and winners or losers. It is time, she says, for us to be more forward-thinking and creative. And underpinning this is dismissing the idea or the notion that winning a gold medal or the equivalent, for example, getting a big house or a million followers or achievement, in other words, makes us more important than anyone else, than the man or woman in the street. Mental hierarchies are an illusion. This is about rising above ideas about status. Now, before we get to this episode, I wanted to ask you a small favor. Please, could you share this conversation with two people? If you do that and drop me a message to let me know, I will give you a name check and a shout out on next week's episode. If you do like this podcast and believe that it does have value, please can you help by spreading the word. It really does make a huge difference and I would be hugely grateful. So from next week, I will name check anyone who shares this episode. And before we get to this conversation, I want to start by saying a big thank you to Martin who messaged me to say how much his meditation group enjoyed last week's newsletter. And if you want to sign up for that, go to simonmundy.com where you can also drop me a message. Right, to this week's conversation 
Here is Kath Bishop. Good morning, Kath. How are you? Really well, Simon. Good to be here with you. Lovely to have you back. It's uh, It's been a while since your book, The Long Win, came out. And I was inspired to, well, we've chatted a few times, but I was inspired to reach out and get you back on because I read one of your many articles that I've read over the last year or so. Just yesterday morning, I was doing the Today program and I read one. And I just thought it was absolutely fantastic commenting on the Winter Olympics and one incident in in particular. And I want to touch back on it later, but do you want to just quickly, before we get into the long win and recap all that stuff, do you want to just quickly give me a, or give us an overview of what you wrote about? Sure. Well, I think it's a story that has actually reached the whole nation in many ways of Valieva, Kamila Valieva, the Russian ice skater, who uh, at the age of 15 um, arrived at the Olympics and shortly after um, competing in the team event, um, it was announced that her she'd had a blood t- a drugs test that had tested positive and mm. it turns out to be a trio of heart drugs. But that was only the beginning of this sort of really sinister fairy tale. Um, after sort of disputes, Cass decided that it would be wrong for her not to continue to compete in the individual program and almost out of a protection for her she should compete but of course with all the pressure I think many of us watched that performance when she literally unraveled under the tea under the world's gaze and as she came off the rink her coach's approach to this 15 year old destroyed rushing to get off the ice about to burst into tears you know her coach just says to her why didn't you deliver? You know, why did you let it go? Why didn't you fight for it? Uh, and I think that again, you know, was was something that watching that unfold was quite moving. Mm. Um, but there were two levels to this story because at one level, I think there was a lot of condemnation that shouldn't be happening. Clearly, it's just nobody felt comfortable watching what this fifteen-year-old was enduring. But I think there was also a secondary reaction where we sort of listened to some of that and go oh yeah, that's that's happened to me. Mm. Uh, or actually, I've seen that happening with coaches or teachers or parents. And, you know, we shouldn't just be vilifying what's happening over there, but thinking about it, have we really got our own house in order in terms of how we treat and speak to athletes, pupils, whoever it is down at the, the local sports club that we are coaching? And, you know, what is our attitude about what's, what's okay to be said in the pursuit of a gold medal. Just on the 15-year-old who clearly will be traumatised by this, won't she? I mean, you do fear, you do Definitely. wonder what impact this will have on her, really for the rest of her life. Mm. The one thing that girl needed was an arm around her and, and mm. that was just not offered. It was quite a different discourse that immediately met her. Um, but she is a pawn. We know that a lot of those girls, they only turn up for one Olympics. The next lot are ready to go. So it really is a, a machine and they are expendable. And again, that's very uncomfortable to see that the pursuit of gold medals has enabled this sense of athletes being expendable. It doesn't matter what you do on the way and what the human cost is, as long as that shiny gold medal is there at the end of it. She was essentially treated like an object, a disposable object, as you've alluded to, this this churn. But having read The Long Wind, so you and I have spoken about The Long Wind before, but you alluded to the fact that 
in the article that I read that this reminded you to some degree of experiences you either had or witnessed during your own elite athletic career? So I, I did. And I, as I was reflecting on this event last week, I felt really personally distressed by it. Um, but having conversations also with with some other um, former rowers, former athletes, I think we all had a moment of connection with this. I can remember coming out of races, coming back to the dock, getting out of the boat where the race hadn't gone well. We didn't have a good result. And I felt completely physically depleted emotionally depleted at a massive low and at this point not really processing it but it, you know emotionally at a low mm -hmm. and at that point where you just want someone to put an arm around you and said look you know you, well done for having a go and and let's get sorted and then let's think about um what happened and, and where we go but again I, I there wasn't that arm around you there was definitely an immediate inquiry about why hadn't I delivered and I've been mentally weak in this part of the race and why didn't you do this that we'd set out to do in the plan you know immediately in that moment of huge um distress and just emotional exhaustion and so I think that's you know it reminded me of those sorts of moments and how awful that was albeit I was in my 20s at that point. So the idea of that actually happening to you at 15, uh, again, I can't imagine how that would feel. Um, but I just, so many of us it, it, that I've spoken to sort of over the last week or so, it, it struck a nasty chord. And of course, when I was talking to Sam Parfit from the True Athlete Project, he was again saying, this is something that we see up and down the country, unfortunately, um, in schools, within sport, at all levels, where also we love sport and then we end up hating sport. You know, a, a local friend contacted me saying who'd been a really serious swimmer growing up saying, you know, I loved swimming, but it was that kind of coaching, lack of support that meant, you know, I walked away from a sport that I loved, hating it. And mm. that is such a tragedy. And it's not just coaching. There's a lot of parents like that as well. Yeah. I mean, it can, it, it's not all, but it can absolutely be parents, teachers, coaches, um, often who've gone through this themselves, who've been conditioned, who've seen this, who are repeating what others are doing around them. Um, you know, I've been working with various schools, with various teachers on the back of the long win from sports teachers wanting to reframe things, wanting to, to ensure that the, 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 the sport that they love and they want children to love is not about whether you win just the local league or the school's league next year, that it's about a different experience, that they are setting their kids up for a healthy life. That's the long win that they're responsible for as sports teachers, but they get blocked sometimes by parents, sometimes by head teachers um, who, who are stuck in this sort of old way of thinking about, are we going to win this summer or not? When that's not what the child will look back on. Um, I've also heard stories where actually, you know, a team did have this heroic win of the league, but all the kids had had such a miserable experience. They left the sport immediately. That's mm -hmm. not success. No. You mentioned that perhaps coaches and parents have been through something and they're continuing the cycle and we know how things get passed down generation to generation just in terms of this behavior of treating people in a harsh manner making them believe that the outcome is all important over enjoyment over development over cooperation all those actual beautiful parts of sport if i had to ask you the belief 
that is underlying that behavior, that projection, what do you think it might be? The belief is that anything is okay in the pursuit of an outcome, um, that there are no values, if you like, that trump that. There are no considerations of what matters beyond that. It's Again, it's this narrowness that the medal all can be justified in pursuit of it. And, and there are lots of phrases we use in sport that now I see as really quite sinister mm. around, you know, are you willing to do what it takes? I remember people asking me that. I remember coaches asking me that. And it was seen as a really positive thing. It's the sort of language you hear in movies, in Rocky, and, you know, how tough are you? Are you willing to do what it takes? But actually now that phrase for me is very sinister because then there's no bar on what you might do. You think of what Camila Villeva went through and these drugs that are putting her body, you know, you get into a point where you will do anything and you want to prove that you are willing to do anything. And that's when you can get into all sorts of really compromised situations. Um, most obviously, you know, in, in some cases, in some contexts, that might mean drugs. But actually, it's pretty sinister just in a context where it means, you know, you, you no longer have an identity or a self-worth beyond that medal. You no longer have a sense that you matter if, you know, if you don't win. And that's pretty damaging, too, to any individual. Absolutely. It's like the difference, I think, between goals and values. And obviously, we live in a very goal-centric society. And I've had a few conversations along these lines. Everyone talks about their goals, their New Year's resolutions, whereas obviously values, which are how do you want to be in the world day to day, whereas goals obviously are in the future by definition. And I saw some interesting research about if you're too focused on goals, then that can often lead to, for example, unethical behavior. And one thinks mm. of drugs, both in this case or mm. someone like Lance Armstrong who obviously was so obsessed with winning at all costs that morality was put to one side. So that's one thing, this kind of, I think, overemphasis on goals and underemphasis on values. So that's one. And then you mentioned about the, the outcome. So the outcome being all important. And the fact is, it's not why we get into sport, is it? And I want to ask you about this. But for me, I remember, you know, I've been lucky enough to play lots of sports, never to your level, but the one that stands out for me is always tennis. And I remember the first time I hit a forehand really sweetly. And it was just that feeling of, oh, lovely, beautiful. I love that. You know, I'd be out there playing for hours with my sister at first and, and friends. I have no idea who won or lost. And it wasn't about the outcome. It was about being out there and enjoying sport for its own sake. In terms of your own life, then, obviously, you were a very elite rower. Why did you get into rowing? How and why did you get into rowing? So I think I probably had a slightly unconventional route into sport. And that's perhaps also why I've challenged it and always felt a little uncomfortable with some of it because I didn't really grow up as a very sporty child. And I got into rowing by chance at university. I hadn't actually wanted to do it because it looked like it was really hard work and involved getting up early in the morning. Uh, so anyway, I did initially didn't sign up to do it, but I got roped into it a few weeks later by people who were becoming my friends and were loving it. And there was a huge bars and a camaraderie and they needed an eighth person because someone had got injured for three weeks so they could do this sort of novice race. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll give it a go, you know, for a couple of days, see how it goes. And the lovely thing about actually joining a sport in such an inauspicious way was that 
I was literally thinking, am I going to enjoy this or not? Mm. I was not thinking, am I going to be good? Are we going to win this novice race? Am I going to go to the Olympics? I mean, nothing could have been further from my mind that first morning as I you know, was obviously hopeless, as we all are when we do something for the first time. But what I did latch onto was just a real, but this is a fun thing to do. It's really different. It's challenging me physically, mentally. I liked the combination you have in rowing where you're trying to get the best out of yourself individually, but always in a way that works with being in time with everyone around you. And then you have that sort of third layer of the environment you're in. So you're always balancing that sort of individual team and the environment piece, the water, the weather, responding to that, being alert to to what that means. And I liked that sort of balancing of those three levels all the time. And I loved being on the water. I loved the feeling of the Mm. boat moving over the water. And that was always what I loved. And there were days sort of 10 years later when I was training for the Olympics when it was miserable and it was cold and I was being shouted at and I was going slowly and I was exhausted and I was maybe a little bit on the edge of you know burnout but there was still a part of me going oh you know I'm probably going to retire tomorrow I'm probably out or I'm going to be deselected tomorrow but do you know what I love being on the river and it was almost like my little secret isn't this an amazing place to be you know throughout all the weather throughout all of the, the year it's what enabled me to endure you know some of that that kind of uh brutality of of that world and you know i think certainly one expects high performance to be tough i'm not against that at all but i think you know as we've talked about it's the um the sort of the belittling side of it it's the self-esteem part it's your identity part that you start to lose um, but I'm so grateful that really what what got me through and what still connects me to the sport is that I fundamentally love being on a boat on a river. Is it fair to say, at least in the early days, it was about then sort of exploration and enjoyment over expectation, aka outcome? I mean, totally. Again, there was there was no sense of I want to go to the Olympics. There was a sort of ridiculous concept. There was a, a small sense that people are going, oh, you could get to the next level. You know, you could kind of get from this college boat to a university boat, and and the next step was there. And thinking, okay, that that that's that that's manageable. That looks okay. It's not that different from where I am, and also that's going to help me to develop further. So again, you know, the the I, I love the search for the the perfect stroke that you never take, that utopian perfect rowing stroke, which is going to be like the the perfect forehand. Yeah. You, know, you never do it. And, and you get hooked into that, thinking about how can I just, how can I get closer to it? So that was drawing me on the sense of, you know, how do I improve all the time? And that became the engine then that took me through the levels. And then eventually, you know, then I'm suddenly on this path to the Olympics. But at that point, it was a real shock because this, uh, the, the culture shifted and, and people were literally saying to me, don't, don't expect to have fun anymore. Now you're a serious athlete. You know that stuff at the university where you're having fun. This isn't like that. And it shouldn't be like that. So this is different. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I, what do I know? Okay, I've got to learn to be miserable and I've got to learn to suffer more. That's good. That's a good thing. I've got to learn, you know, this this sort of macho narrative that you're, you know, you're willing to do whatever it takes and the, the harder, the better and be the last person standing. And, you know, and if you lose, oh, my goodness, it's the end of the world. Uh, you know, and I found myself like learning. Oh, OK, that's that's the rules of this world. But actually, it wasn't helping me go faster. 
That's so interesting. And that really reminds me of a conversation I had when I was working at Wimbledon last year doing the players' interviews. I interviewed um, Barbora Krejcikova. Now, she was a doubles specialist initially. And then she surprised everyone by winning the 2021 French Open singles uh, title. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I think she got through to the quarters at Wimbledon and I had a fascinating chat with her after the, I think it was the fourth round of quarters. And I asked her why she'd suddenly enjoyed this success in singles that had previously been elusive. And she said that she noticed that when she was playing mixed doubles, which tends to have perhaps be a little more or can be a little more lighthearted than, for Mm. example, uh, doubles or singles, she noticed that when she went in there with that, well, I'm just going to enjoy this attitude, she tended to play well. So she then said, well, I'm going to transport this attitude to the singles court. And lo and behold, she went and won the French Open. So this idea that you just uh, relayed from that you were being told of, oh, you're not going to enjoy this anymore. Not only is it unhealthy, it actually is not a recipe for success either. You know, if you're having fun, if you're enjoying yourself, if you're not obsessed and worried about, oh goodness, if I lose my self-worth's at stake, actually, not only are you going to enjoy it more, not only are you going to have more longevity, but it's quite possible you're more likely to succeed as well. Absolutely. And it's the shift, isn't it, from a world of fear-based motivation to exploring the joy. I think we've seen Naomi Osaka go Mm. through a similar process of uh, getting to a place where she was just deeply unhappy. And she herself will say, I was too obsessed with rankings and I want to try and learn how to enjoy it again. And, And isn't that sad that you've got to a place where you've forgotten how to have fun on the court from something that you did originally fall in love with and found you had a talent for. I think one of the joys of watching Emma Raducanu last year as Mm. well was that, you know, no emphasis on outcomes. Her coach said over the entire, whatever it was, six, seven weeks in America, never once was the goal to win the next match. It was always about uh, improving and learning and having fun. And, you know, we could see the joy. I think that was why it was so lovely to watch. Um, What's interesting is how hard it is for athletes to do that because of the environment they're in, because of the narrative that we hear, whether it's from coaches, whether it's from the media, um, and often the way they've been conditioned and what they've had in sporting environments, grassroots as well growing up. It's actually not that easy now to go and have fun, which is a bit sad, isn't it? At the end of the day, everyone gets into sport, or the majority at least, because they enjoy it. They find something invigorating and life-affirming within it. And something you said a little earlier about you love being on the river, but also you love that seeking that perfection of the perfect rowing stroke. And this is something that's come up. I remember Goldie Sayers, she had a lovely um, quote. What did she say? She said, um, uh, seeking effortlessness in a throw, for example. And then I, I, I spoke to Rupert Spira. I know you've uh, listened to, oh, I think you've listened to that. I'm not mm. sure. Um, mm. And he, he always talked about, well, it's those moments of where we lose ourselves in the activity and the medal is only ever a symbol of those moments. And, you know, I know that you've spoken about, and, and we'll talk about the long win in a sec, but within the long win, 
the number of examples you came across, for example, Johnny Wilkinson, who I've spoken to as well, who obviously reached the absolute pinnacle, but then felt empty. However, when he was playing between the whistles, that was the one respite he got from all the suffering that sort of enveloped his um, experience of, of sport around it. And I just think it's really interesting that enjoying the moment, losing ourselves in yeah. the moment, as opposed to this fixation on winning, this fixation on medals, on trophies, on medal counts. And we're seeing now the, the recrimination to some degree of the Winter Olympics GB, the, their yeah. lack of medal hall, you know, that, that, that's the story now, isn't it? It's not, whereas actually my daughter was watching, she didn't care, but she was absolutely enthralled just watching the sports. And I think, uh, it's it's slightly the wrong wrong way around. I don't know what your take on everything I've just said there is. It was quite a lot. Totally. <laughs> totally. So let me go back to this joy point because quite often people will say, What what's your favorite moment? What's the highlight of your own career? And and even they might follow up by saying, you know, which which medal? And mm. and I if you immediately when I'm asked, you know, what's that that moment of joy, I am taken immediately instinctively back to a couple of training camps where we're on this beautiful lake in Italy, surrounded by mountains, and the boat flies. We're in perfect synchronicity, and it feels amazing. It feels Mm -hmm. effortless, like that quote from Goldie. And I've really experienced this sort of joy at that level. Beautiful water, beautiful, you know, I'm in a great place physically, individually. I'm in sync with my rowing partner. We're in sync with the water. We're moving, you know, the boat is sort of at one with the water. It feels great, absolute joy. That for me is such a special part of, you know, what I experience and what I'm grateful for. You know, you stand on a podium, usually you're dehydrated, you're exhausted. You know, there's some relief. There's this sort of sense of the aftermath of the pressure temporarily off your shoulders. It's not often pure joy. Um, And we see that, you know, more and more. And actually, as the pressure increases, the more of a favorite you are, the less joy there is, the more Mm -hmm. you've just got that sense of, oh, thank God, the relief. Um, And often, you know, it's people watching who experience more joy than people actually doing it. So, you know, I think it is really important to think, you know, again, you're getting something at sport beyond that moment of of the outcome. And for us to show that through the narratives, through the stories we tell, through the journalism that we use. uh, I mean, I was actually met up with Goldie recently, and, and it's a great example of how when we get together, we have lots of stories that we share across our sports or moments and thinking about stories going on at the moment. We don't sit there and discuss our own results. We don't sit there and bring our Mm. medals. We don't, you know, this sense that it's all about the medals. But whenever I get together with old teammates, that's not what you talk about. That's not the stuff that you remember. That's not the stuff you connect over. The things that made you feel alive, the things that connected you to your sport. And so why can't we transmit some of that beyond? Why do we only tell this story of the medals? You mentioned this sort of medal table piece, and I find it just getting a little dull now that we can't move away from that. Um, And even though there's a a half-hearted attempt to say it's about more than medals, what you've done is still define it in terms of medals, because you haven't defined it what more than means, and you're still stuck in a medal narrative. 
So we seem to be unable to get out of this sort of circular narrative that in itself is a bit meaningless. So I think we won two medals in the Winter Olympics. We only ever are going to, you know, it's an yeah. amazing year to win six. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd have been really happy with four. Um, so really, is that is that what we're going to sit and talk about? Yeah. Um, what about the incredible stories of what we saw out there? What about the integrity of athletes who did, you know, the risks that athletes took, uh, you know, the experiences they had in these kind of death-defying sports that they're doing? There's so much out there. And there is no evidence that suggests that the British nation suffers if we win slightly less medals. You know, right. think about the summer, we're chasing, you know, 60-plus medals, and sure, you know, in Atlanta, we won kind of one gold medal and, and just a, a handful. OK, that's not that doesn't replicate, uh, represent what, what our nation is capable of. I, you know, I get that that's a reason to go, hang on, we can do things better. But now the sense that the nation cares, whether it's 40 or 50 or 60, I just don't get that. I think the nation cares more about the quality of the stories yeah. of the 40 or 50 or however many it is. And we don't want to see people abused along the way. And we don't want to have people coming out with mental health issues. And we need to think about the quality of the narratives we're putting out. And I think um, in one of your articles, I remember reading that a lot of people are inspired not now by to take up sport in terms of participation this is not by the elite athletes because they can't identify with them but actually yeah. by by teachers which i think speaks volumes now i'm loath to compare my own sporting um let's say uh career non-career with yours but th when you were talking about the moments that stood out for you i mean there are two that stand out for me one was i remember a backhand cross court i hit when no one was watching during a social game that i had no idea where it came from and i was just in awe of the fact that i'd managed to do this thing that was uh, you know i'd never practiced so that was one thing and then the second um at school i played rugby and i i wasn't i was in the uh, a's until sixth form um, when I got distracted by various other things. Anyway, I was playing in the second team and just the camaraderie in that team, and we were quite successful, but it was the camaraderie. And, and mm. there was one game in particular where we were just so close. We weren't all friends, actually, but it was the tightness that mm. we had within the team. That's what I remember. So there are two very, um, you know, that those two things that really stand out for me for sport. And obviously now I'm older and I play golf and tennis. I'm obviously past my peak. And it's just getting enjoying it for its own sake. And you mentioned there about, you know, when you get together with with Goldie and you don't talk about the medals. And I'm always reminded about how Goldie um, hangs her medal, no disrespect to it, but above a, a, a um, recycling bin. And she's uh, conscious of how unattached to it actually she is. And it reminds me, actually, I went to a funeral not long ago. Um, quick change of pace here. And... You know, no one talks at a funeral about, oh, they did this, they earned this amount of money, they, you know, mm. they've won this. They, It's about what they're like and the connections that they had, you know, no, and which comes back to that sort of goals and values piece. And we'll, you, you touched on media coverage and we'll come to that. But listen, I, I do want to ask you, let's just quickly recap your, you know, the long win that you wrote. And I know it's really resonated. It's been, what, just over a year now since it came mm. out, am I right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know it's really resonated with a lot of companies. If you just had to summarize why you wrote it and what sort of the gist of it was, in a, just in a, in a paragraph or two, could you give that a shot? Sure. 
The Long Win is about examining our obsession with winning defined in a very narrow way. So over time in sport, in business, in education, in politics, we define it as just a single moment in time, getting a certificate, getting hitting your bonus um, targets or winning your medal. And it's become often imposed by others. Uh, it's short term, it's transient, doesn't have any lasting value. And that's what success has become increasingly wrapped up in. But that has led to a lot of unfulfillment sense of actually we're not exploring our potential either and you know I wanted to examine how have we got to this across sport business education politics and how might we do things differently to actually clarify success in a longer term way with broader criteria how we might focus on that constant learning rather than some future outcome but just the fact that all the time we're exploring we're learning we're growing um, to see that as really the the engine of of success and to focus on connections, the human mm. part of what we do, because that is what we remember. That's what we feel. That's the stuff that you were talking about, um, you know, that you feel connected to a particular group of people at a particular time and experiences, the shared experiences you had. And so I wanted to really challenge uh, what winning means to us, you know, in our lives and, and encourage us and challenge us to redefine that. There was a brilliant article on your website, and I would recommend anyone go and check it out there's loads of great stuff around this subject on there and i'm actually just on there now www.cathbishop.com that's cath with a c and there was one article and i'm a bit ashamed because i can't remember which golfer it was but it was a golfer who thomas bjorn, thomas bjorn that's it thank you cath um who basically yeah he, he secured his first win didn't he and he was like when he got given the medal the trophy he was cock a hoop and then Five minutes afterwards, when he was on his own, he was like, God, is that it? And then, but then he compared that with his um, Ryder Cup triumph, where he was sharing it with others and the, the joy that he experienced in that. And I thought that sort of spoke volumes. Um, something that leapt out at me from our last conversation, and actually, yeah, just some, something you mentioned, it really stuck with me was so you competed in three games, didn't you? You won silver at your third attempt. And mm -hmm. you noted how you were suddenly treated a bit differently. Is that fair? Yeah. So definitely. what are your reflections then on that? This, this idea that, you know, once you win a medal, suddenly you're deserving of a, <laughs> the red carpet treatment or a bit of a different treatment than, for example, if you come down the field. And I want to relate this as well to life full stop. I've mentioned to you before for example, in the world of broadcasting, you know, there's this word talent. So people who are on air and they get treated differently. Allowances are made often for behavior that wouldn't be acceptable for people lower down that particular pecking order. But this idea that, you know, achieving a particular outcome in the, in the case of sport, a medal, makes you somebody more important, more special, more deserving of respect than someone who you know is just quote unquote normal mm, i feel entirely uncomfortable about it 
the the whole sporting experience uh so the the 10 years that i was in the olympic team it, this was a, a common theme and so i spent most of that time when i didn't have an olympic medal feeling of lower status hmm. um this was even sort of when we went to competitions you sort of all fly out together but on the way home there was a sort of difference in in ranking the most important people sort of patted on the back got their plane tickets first and, and the rest of you you know you got that those sort of the questions you know why didn't you deliver you know you've got to do better next time that sort of thing hanging over you and you you know you sort of skulked on last onto the plane so there was always this sense of um, the people who've got the voice are the ones who are winning. I can remember very early on in my career noticing, so it was literally one of the first training camps I went on saying, oh, well, actually, this doesn't seem to be very fair and this isn't working that well here, the timings when we're doing our training. And there was this sort of utter horror. It was almost like that, you know, Oliver moment when he asked for more porridge. <laughs> there was this sort of, who are you to, to be asking for something to change? Um, how many Olympic medals have you got? Um, zero. How long have you been in the team? Three months. You know, this sort of utter horror that I, you know, could go away, come back when you've, when you've won a medal, then you've got a voice. So terribly damaging experience, actually. And for me, it was a, I'd never been treated like that before. And it was a huge shock. And I was trying to make sense of that's, that's the values, if you like, within this world. But it, you know, it, it happens now, you know, beyond, it's not just in the running team, it happens sort of across the world where schools will invite you to give a talk if you've got a medal, but probably not if you went 0.01 seconds slower and came forth. Uh, businesses will invite you to talk if you've got a medal, um, but definitely not if you came fifth. And um, so we have this kind of narrow sense of these are the people that that have more value their story has more value and I think that is crazy in the case of going to talk to companies or to schools where you're often talking to perhaps 50 60 or hundreds of people who what are you saying that they all have to come first second or third in what they do you know a that assumes that what they do is ranked and should be ranked B, it's statistically impossible that they can all come first, second or third. And, and C, so what, what are you telling them? You're actually saying most of you won't succeed. It, it's a nonsense. But we mm. have this sense of giving this extra value because of this medal. And then also, yeah, as you say, we start to allow different behaviours potentially. We, you know, and again, that's a really slippery slope for the athletes involved. So it's something I find difficult. I mean, I, I, I feel troubled by the fact that people... Uh, you know, it gave me a platform to write a book because of having that medal. Uh, yeah. A lot of the work I do, I have it. And yet, um, you know, I try and use that platform to sort of undo the platform at the same time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm interested in your reflections then on this idea of this status. Now, status, I've done a bit of research on it, is um, it's something our minds and brains rush to. We make status assessments very quickly, and this is something that happens in within all mammals. Evolutionary biologists of um, their belief, should we say, is that historically speaking, it leads to you know better shelter, better food, better mates, better access to all those things. But as humans, we have metacognition, which just means we are able to be aware of our thinking process. So my belief is that you know of course our minds do this but we have a choice as to whether or not we go along with it and a conclusion i've arrived at is that you know no matter what you achieve and johnny wilkinson a member spoke about this very eloquently as well no matter what you achieve um, in life or what you acquire that does not make you any more special or any more important than anyone else because so for example when you won the silver medal you were still the same person with the same patterns, the same anxieties that everyone has as you were before you won that silver medal. So you know, what's your take on this, putting people in hierarchies and, and status more broadly, and this idea that if you achieve something in sport is the obvious example, but in any area, in business, in well, any area at all, really, then that suddenly makes you a more special person worthy of different treatment. What's your take on status? Mm, so I, I agree it's a construct. It's a powerful construct, unfortunately, because of often what we do here in our upbringing and from authority figures, teachers, parents around us. But it nevertheless is a construct and we have a choice, as you say, to um, construct what matters differently. And that's what the long win, I hope, is offering a different way of constructing what success could look like. Um, I think it is extremely damaging when it's constructed around something that is temporary, i.e. crossing the line first, standing on a podium, hitting your targets, getting a A star at school. Um, and when it's often something that doesn't have a lot of meaning to you, so it's defined in a non-human way, so it's a medal, a certificate, uh, a salary figure, uh, and if it's also something that's imposed by others, so something that you think you ought to be winning or that somebody tells you you should be winning. So when, when we construct um, you know, a sense that value, um, status should depend on these things that actually don't connect with us, don't have lasting value and aren't something we really believe and choose in, then again, we're left very unfulfilled and it's difficult to actually be at our best, to be thriving in that kind of scenario. Even if we're doing seemingly well and we're winning the medal, we're not really thriving. And that's, of course, what we see with the, the high level of mental health challenges mm. for lots of elite athletes who seem to be so successful. But of course, that's really quite a veneer. And mm. that, again, is why I'm trying to get us to think about success 
as something that is based much more around a you know a purpose around something that has lasting value so what does the medal represent when the medal is disconnected from something that that has meaning when you step off the podium that's when we get this sort of crash and this sense of unfulfillment and emptiness that's talked about um, so I'm trying to get us to think about, if you like, what's the, you know, the more infinite ways in which we can do things that have meaning rather than the short term transient sense of what success looks like. We need to be thinking about our experience, our human experience that goes on during uh, our lives. You know, that's always going to we're always having an experience. So let's shape that. That's the thing that we take with us from winning the medal. What's the story we tell about it? That, for me, is the most important thing. What's the thing that you go and, and, and talk about and share with friends, with whatever you go on to do in your life after sport? Um, that human story is, for me, the thing that has the, the lasting value. So really interesting what you said there, I think, about, about purpose, about meaning, which is something we all have to find. And, you know, I think living in accordance with, with our values. And so, for example, you know, being kind, being honest, integrity, all those things that are fairly universal. Obviously, the more we can do that, I think the research shows that the more at peace we will tend to be. What do you think of this? I mean, my the conclusion I've arrived at is that, you know, our value is intrinsic. We have it just because of the fact that we exist. So this idea that we can become more valuable and i don't mean in the eyes of others because obviously approval is a, a fickle thing that can go up and down but just self-worth if you like it is innate to us and so the idea that it can go up and down as a result of winning a gold medal winning a contract earning a million pounds getting mm. a million followers is an illusion no i well it, it's uh it, it distracts us and it actually sort of sucks us into a a, a kind of cul-de-sac almost of what life could be i think one of the one of the things i'd almost build on that is that we have individual innate worth but we also are always part of something so we have that sort of collective sense of who we are as part of society or our family or our communities whatever level we're connecting in with others and i think sometimes we also overestimate the sort of you've got to prove your worth mm. as an individual on your own you know and again we're assessed individually at school and in sport most of the time and you know in actual fact what we need to either solve the social environmental economic health problems that we have across society is much more of a, a cooperative collaborative effort the things that we need to do in order to be successful in businesses now is to work better in teams and i find people are just you know almost uneducated about what that really looks like because there's this i'm here to prove myself thing that is so very very dominant there's there's a, a lovely sort of essay that's um a, a harvard business school professor clayton christensen wrote that's quite well known within the business world it was it came out of a talk that he would always give to the mba students at the Harvard Business School. Um, you, you can sort of look up the essay online or you can um, you can get it as a, as a sort of small uh, little tiny book. And it's literally called, How Will You Measure Your Life? And he talks about the sort of different lessons he learned through his life and the, the sort of how he sat, you know, like most of these MBA students thinking it's all about, you know, the salary and the status mm -hmm. and, and all of some of the things we've talked about. And, and he ends up by saying, don't worry about the level of prominence you have achieved. 
worry about the individuals you have helped become better people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really lovely reframing of how we might start to measure, and we're obsessed by measuring things, um, you know, measure success differently. And I think that can transfer into sport, into business, into education, you know, in, into our lives, into that, you know, we've, through the pandemic, felt the isolation and how damaging that is to us. Um, that actually meaning comes from a sense of, yeah, what are we doing to help others become better people? How are we connecting? And, you know, I just love that framing. Yeah, I think that's great. So it's how how will you measure your life? Sorry, who was the author? Mm, Clayton Christensen. Okay, I'll try and link to that. And I think I've read it on your website. It's this view of survival of the fittest, which I think relates to this, mm. and this, this idea that it's dog eat dog. But actually, if you look at nature, it's much more about collaboration, cooperation. It's a bit mm. of an illusion, isn't it, that you know, my success has to come at the expense of yours. And actually, another thing I read on on your website was this idea of the number of businesses, for example, that saying, you know, we want to be number one, we want to be the best. And you're saying, well, why? And very few people can actually answer that question. Yeah, I mean, well, we can go on to sort of stories. But in a way, that is about what's the story you tell about your company? Is it that we want to be the best? We want to be number one? Or is it that we're actually in some way making people's lives better? And that's often so the companies that have this brilliant, I want to be number one, uh, it's very prevalent, you know, often at the same time are saying, but people don't seem very engaged. And we've got low scores on our engagement surveys. And, you know, we, mm. we want to motivate people more because but yet they don't make the link that saying you want to be number one. It's actually not motivating to people. It, it means nothing to them in their role because they what will motivate them is to know how their role contributes to something that has a positive impact in on society in some small way. You don't have to be changing the world, but to know that your work matters that's what people want to know not some ranking so what advice would you have just on that point for businesses for example to empower and really engage their staff so well when i have those sorts of conversations then uh you know i will say well why why do you want to be number one what what good can you do as a result of being number one and why do you deserve uh to be number one so we start to um unpick that it's not really about the ranking is it It, it, the the ranking might then enable you to do something so let's start focusing on that what's the change that you want to see what's the good what's the impact you're going to have that in some way is going to help someone else's life outside this company those are the things that people want to connect to and it is about that sense then of creating a connection between the the sort of top level vision and the everyday life that everyone has the mundane stuff we have to do we want to have some sense that it counts towards something that matters in some way and it is then building out that narrative of what matters and that can be you know again much broader than just a single number um, it is about describing perhaps that, you know, who are the customers or the, you know, the, the lives that are going to be changed through what you do. Um, and then about, well, actually, we, we also, as a result, we need your best ideas so we can do it even better. And that's then when we get sort of motivation, the sense of purpose, the sense of creativity that comes from that and the resilience to, you know, get through the hard times because I know it matters. Basic behavioral psychology. If I don't know why I'm doing something, then actually when it gets difficult, I won't find a way around it. If I know it matters, I'll find a way. I remember my chat with um, David Hamilton, who was talking about kindness. And, you know, when we do acts of kindness or when we 
contribute in some way, even in just some small way, letting someone out when you're driving your car, being kind to a cashier, whatever it may be, to the well-being of others, we literally get a chemical hormonal boost within our bodies and we're wired actually towards kindness. So that that really taps into what you're saying. It's it's rather than this, okay, I want to rise to the top of the pile and and beat everyone down on the way up to change that to actually, no, I want to do my bit to help others and to contribute to the, to the well-being of society, essentially, en masse. Um, you know, there are signs even within our own biology that that actually is, is the way perhaps we should be looking. And that's obviously a, a theme that underpins the work you do. Mm, it's a it's a redefinition of almost what a healthy society looks like, what a healthy life looks like, what a healthy experience of sport looks like, what a healthy experience of school looks like. And I think we are very much in the moment sort of struggling or, or uh, you know, working out how to reframe it, realising that actually some of the old narratives that are so ingrained are really limiting on the human experience that they are not the full picture whether it's medals or exam grades or bonuses that's not the true story of who we are it's just a story of self and society that most of us have been brought up with but actually we have the opportunity to create a different world to to behave in a, a different way to create a new story and that for me is the the exciting opportunity and we have more opportunities than ever because of the the means the the sort of social media mechanisms um the you know i think the increasing focus on diversity that allows more voices to be heard not enough yet but more than previously that gives us the opportunity of seeing you know a pluralism of voices if you like around us defining things so it all becomes a little bit more diffuse a little bit more messy it's not just one dominant narrow a view of the world but i'm up for a more diffuse chaotic slightly messy view of the world yes now, another one of your articles that I thoroughly enjoyed reading after last summer's Olympics, Simone Biles pulled out of the team event, citing her mental health and, and actually her worries about potential physical injury. And obviously there are some people who criticized her for that, but there was also this huge outpouring of support and love. And she did this fantastic tweet where she said that for the first time she recognized that she was, or she felt that she was worth more than her accomplishments, which I thought was a particularly poignant thing to say. But I remember us talking after this and you mentioned how you felt like the athletes were starting. There was some signs in the case of Simone, in the case of Emma Raducanu, Ben Stokes, other people, mm. that there were these signs of people, of athletes moving the conversation forward beyond this simple win-loss, you know, I'm worth something if I win and I'm not if I lose narrative that had previously been a bit pervasive. But the media was still stuck in the in the very simple, let's report the results, let's report on victories and disappointments based on results based on on medals and it seems to have reared its head again after the the winter olympics how would you compare the media's take on things to athletes at the moment and and the fact that as we suggested athletes perhaps are are moving things forward but the media seem potentially a little bit stuck what's your what's your view of of things on that front 
Mm, I, I completely agree. I, I think we see a, almost just a broken record of the same sorts of stories. We, you know, it's loads of results reported, and there's a lot of the heroic narrative about who the latest heroes are, um, who the winners are, uh, and and you know, I, I find that just very narrow because I know that sport isn't like that. I know the experience of sport isn't like that. I think that Gareth Southgate and the England football team did a great job in actually very thoughtfully moving the story on, reframing it, mm. working with the media in a different way, using their platform, understanding the responsibility that they have socially for what they represent and using that very thoughtfully. And their work with Owen Eastwood, I think, gave them you know, a different experience as a team of being part of something that mattered, that they felt they belonged to, that they had that collective identity that's what enabled them to perform at a much higher level than I've seen in my entire life. So, you know, I think there are some leaders. Um, you mentioned uh, Ben Stokes as well and Naomi Osaka, who, who've spoken out about mental health. And they are ahead of the leaders of sports organisations, international federations, and they are ahead of the majority of the traditional media. I think that there is uh, an increase and an interest, a natural human interest around different stories. And that's, you know, the success of podcasts like yours and similarly across business and, and education. Uh, it's because, you know, medals are not the true story of who we are as humans. You know, it is just this story that we've been brought up with and we've got stuck in. But actually the opportunity is to really start to recreate something different. So, you know, the stories don't show up on the traditional media radar because that radar is just resolutely pointing in the direction where we've been. But it doesn't mean the other stories aren't out there. And we do often have other ways of you know, now bringing them, um, you know, again, through different social media, through different connections. So I think it's about helping others to see the world sort of through the lens of some of these different stories. And the athletes themselves have platforms and they can do that direct. And that's what Simone Biles did in, in one fell swoop. Yeah, that tweet was so powerful. I mean, it sums it up to an absolute T. You know, I'm more than my achievements. And I think that's a message that we could all internalise. We are more than than what we do, than what we acquire. So how can the media and the way it's reported, what would be your suggestion for the way they can upgrade the way sport is reported to make it a bit more rounded and a bit more healthy? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. I think there's huge scope for journalists to connect in, you know, as we saw with the England football team and, and actually see the stories, be part of what happens before and after the medal, to think about those um, those stories that resonate to think about, you know, actually, what could I, what stories are there that we overlook that are human stories that people will connect with? That's what we want to hear. The ones that we all tell and connect to, you know, in the pub, whatever it is, when we know someone who's been involved in, in the Olympics or whatever it might be. The ones that we all tell each other when we meet up about, you know, our experiences playing sport, at whatever level it is. That's the stuff, actually, we, we want to hear more of. Just quickly, if you had to, if you were an editor in a newsroom and you had a chance to stand up and encourage journalists to report in a different way, what would you say to them? Just briefly. I'd say bring me human stories, not results. I'd say let's, you know, I do an experiment. Okay, I don't, I don't want, I want to have a whole section of sport that mentions no results, but you've got to make it readable. Go find it. Just quickly on this, this idea that, you know, winning something or 
achieving a certain status makes you more important than anyone else as opposed to you know my view that we're all on the level and actually that's quite freeing it frees us up to to mm. try and be the best of ourselves and contribute as best we can you know what what's your take on you know you win something you're better than someone else or we're all on the on the level and always will be so i i the whole premise of that is that we're basing value on comparative value. So it's you compared to me. Um, mm. And that means that one of us is going to lose. It's a zero sum game. And in fact, most of us lose because, of course, there's, you know, there's one winner and, and everybody else is, you know, is a loser within that game, whether it's the Olympics or your business company or your sector of businesses are competing in. So it's a very limiting story because we have then hardly anyone who wins and lots of people who actually are failures, who then can't explore their contribution, who are sort of written off, excluded. So for me, we've got to take away the sense that the fundamental value is from comparison. And actually, it's about that collaborative exploration of possibilities again. That's actually what, what we should be kind of focusing on and, and value comes from what, what can we do together? Yeah. So this idea that winning makes you something special is, is illusory. Totally. Right. Final question for you, Kath. What does success mean and how can we achieve fulfillment? The important thing for me is not that we suddenly switch, you know, it's not medals, it's this. Success is about exploring what's possible and it's a lifelong exploration. Exploration. I think that's such a fantastic word, exploration. Well, listen, Kath, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before I plug all your stuff? <laughs> no, all good. Okay, here we go. So, so first of all, I would say do check out, obviously, your book, The Long Win. There's kathbishop.com. You've got so many articles on there. You've, you've always got articles coming up in The Guardian, which I you know, lap up. Actually, just a final thing. How, how have things moved forward, do you think, since you released your book? So the, the good thing is I, I really didn't know what the reception would be. And in fact, you know, often there's an idea and then, and then you know, life moves on. But I think the, the pandemic has heightened the need and the urgency to reevaluate what matters in our own lives and as a society to reevaluate how we look after each other health-wise, but also mm. the environmental issue that, that is so pressing in on us. So I think this is a time when people are reevaluating what matters. And, you know, the long win, I think, has, has therefore come into that space to help people reframe, think about actually what, what's the different narrative, what's the other stories that, that I could tell, that I could be part of creating. So I think there is a real movement um, we might not see it because the sort of, as I said, the traditional sort of media government bodies, you know, are still talking in the old way. But I do actually think that there are movements across teachers I've spoken to, business leaders I've spoken to, sports coaches I've spoken to who want to do things different and are excited about opening up those possibilities. Fantastic. Right. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Always is. As ever, Kath, just a huge thank you to you for coming on. Love the conversation. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode with Kath Bishop. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts or your questions or your suggestions. Get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. While you're there, please do sign up for my newsletter. It's called Monday on Monday, and it features two or three of the best nuggets 
from over three years of these conversations. And just a reminder, I would really appreciate it if you could share this episode with two people. Anyone who does that and drops me a message to let me know, I promise to give a name check and a shout out on next week's episode. If you do like this podcast and think that it has value, please can you help by spreading the word. It really would make a huge difference and I'll be hugely grateful. So as I say, from next week, I will name check anyone who shares this episode or any other. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and thanks in advance for sharing this episode. Until next time, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.